When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 10, Episode 18. In this week's episode, we looked into Red Rock and Housen. We evaluated them as suspects. We broke down their witness statements. And as always, that led us down a path to looking at our existing timeline and giving us a second, third look at a lot of uh, the other statements to try to add a little bit more clarity to the case. In the studio here with me today, as always, is Mr. Mike Bussing. What's up? And Mr. Zach Weaver. Howdy. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, before we get started, I did want to let all of you guys know, kind of a last-minute thing, but if anybody is available and interested... The True Crime Podcast Festival is on this year. It was supposed to be in Kansas City last year, 2020. Obviously, got canceled because of the pandemic. Uh, Lisa Strawn, who is the one that organizes that event, reached out to me uh, late last week, asked if I'd be interested in coming and doing a live true crime binge episode. Um, it's going to be tricky. I'm actually going to Houston uh, the week before that to do some work on this case, but we worked it out. I'm going to be there for one day on Saturday, July 3rd. But if you didn't get to go to CrimeCon or if you did get to go to CrimeCon and you enjoyed it, you should probably check out True Crime Podcast Festival. Again, I said it's in Kansas City. It's the week of 4th of July weekend. It's like the 3rd and 4th. Uh, everything is done by 2 p.m. on the 4th, though, so everybody has time to get home in time for, for fireworks. Much, much cheaper than CrimeCon. I think the full weekend pass is 150 bucks, and they gave me a promo code. So if you really want to go, use promo code ROUGH, and you'll get 10% off of that. So you can do the whole weekend for 135 bucks. Generation Y guys are going to be there. Uh, one of the r- big draws for me is Josh Hallmark from True Crime Bullshit, the, the Israel Keys podcast. He's going to be there doing a live show. I wanted to go uh, meet in person and hang out with Josh. Bunch of other True Crime podcasts are going to be there. And this, unlike CrimeCon, is all about the podcast. There's no TV and other people like that there. It's all about podcasts. Get to know the podcast you listen to, hang out with them, watch some live events. I think there's a big social gathering. There may even be food and then and and then uh, cash bar. Not sure. There's a there's a big social thing on Saturday night, the third, which I'll be there for that. Uh, but check it out. The, the website is truecrimepodcastfestival.com. You can register for the event again if you're interested. If you're going to be around Kansas City or can get there, 
It's 150 bucks, uh, 135 if you use my promo code ROUGH. Also, they have uh, the, the big fancy hotel it's in. They have a block rate that I think expires today, the day you guys are watching this, the 18th, or listening to this, Friday the 18th. It, it, the block rate expires today. So if you happen to hear this in the morning on the 18th, hop on to the truecrimepodcastfestival.com website, and you can book a hotel. I think the block rate is like 150 159 bucks a night, and it'll go up after today to stay in the actual hotel where the event is. Uh, but want to let you guys know about that. I would let you know sooner, but I didn't know about it sooner, so I just found out about it. Hopefully, we'll see some of you there. And with that being said, let's move on to our discussion. In this week's episode, like I said, I broke down Red Rock and Housen's statement, which, of course, led us back to Jen's statements and then even led us back even further into June Sage's statement, which really became eye-opening for me, as you heard on the show, as I began to break it down. Before we get into all of your questions, Zach, do you have anything or any questions? I think one big thing jumped out to me is I'm curious now, did June maybe really see the the true killers? They said she saw three or, or two to three black males right through the people. We assume that it's the the Red Rock interaction, but some of the timeline stuff I, we don't really know. That I mean, I think she may have seen the real individuals. It's possible. So we made, I made some kind of leaps without realizing it early on when we first started looking at June's statement. So looking at, and that's why. I know there's people that they want to jump ahead and they want to they want to look at more big picture, but there's a reason why we do these hyper focused looked looks at each element of the case, is it causes us to catch things that we didn't catch before. So originally, I read June Sage statement, right? So I'd been through Jennifer's statements. We heard about the Red Rock interaction, and then we read Red Rock and we read House and just kind of in you know briefly way back when we were first kind of getting the big picture of the story, and then we read June Sage's statement, and it's. Uh, and it's describing, you know, it looks like Jennifer knocking on the door, two or three guys come up and then they leave. That must have been her seeing, you know, in my mind, it went from, well, that could have been to it was certainly that's what she saw. It was the interaction with Red Rock and Housen. And then we have the scream. Where does that fit in? Um, and then there was the question of, well, even then was, well, then could the scream could have been somebody screaming upon discovery of the body? And the moving around had been Keith Truesdale moving, you know, moving the, the flower pot and all that away from the door to get in. Uh, or could it have been that Jen was, you know, that was Jen knocking on the door prior to the attack? We talked about back then that didn't seem to make sense because if it was a targeted attack of Catalina and Jen's job was to knock on the door, why would she knock on the wrong door? It doesn't make sense. You know, if they know she knows they're going into the patio there, like, how does she end up over on the other door? That doesn't make much sense. Also, Red Rock and Housen, per Jen statement, come from around the corner from by the office, right? So they, they're coming from the wrong direction and leaving from the wrong direction. And then in her confession, this interaction happens, and the two her two accomplices are standing. It's just the sta- they're standing there by the steps when Red Rock and Housen show up. But Red Rock and Housen say they don't see anybody. Red Rock's actually up the stairs a few steps, doesn't see anybody around. So for a million reasons, it didn't make sense that the interaction with Red Rock and Housen occurred right before the the murder, which I still contend is the case. I still don't think that – I think they would have seen the accomplices. Her knocking on the wrong door doesn't make sense. But then as we took a closer look at it, the fact that we the, the, we think this was Red Rock and Housen was based almost solely on the fact that she described Jennifer, right? Mm-hmm. She described Jennifer and her two-toned hair and her black shirt must have been Jennifer, and therefore that must have been the – the two killers. 
the one thing that sticks out to me with that after really thinking about it is the fact that she's looking through a people. Like how right. well can you describe someone through a people? You know, I, I think most listeners and myself, you know, you guys have looked through people. If it's somebody you really, really, truly recognize at the door, you're probably going to recognize them. Yeah, because it's, it's a fisheye look, it's, right? Yeah. So it's, got, it's, a, it's a compressed image at the middle, and then it kind of like gets more distorted as you go around the circle of the people. So like you might be able to get a really good view of somebody as they're directly outside of your door, but right in front of the right people. in front of the door, right in front of the peephole. But that's it. Yeah. And so the fact that what jumped out at me was the same thing that jumped out at me with Housen was that she describes that she's got two tone highlighted hair. Right. If you're looking at a peephole look of somebody facing the door, mm-hmm. the, the two tone part was in the back. We've seen pictures of the front of Jennifer's hair pulled back. You can't see any highlights. It's her ponytail. It's the back. You couldn't see that through a peephole, uh, you know, and how do you know if somebody's tall or short through a peephole through that fish? You know, there's, there's all those things in there. But originally I thought, well, that must have been Jennifer and therefore this must have been Red Rock and Housen coming up because everything fits, right? But it doesn't really fit. As we dig in even closer, again, she says there's two or three. She just says they came in the area and left. Mm-hmm. Doesn't say what direction they came from. I kind of assumed they came, that they came from the office because I assumed they were, she was seeing what Jennifer described. but. Two or three, they come in and left. Doesn't say anything about one of them being on a bike. Doesn't say anything about one of them climbing up the stairs, walking up the stairs. Doesn't say anything about them interacting with Jennifer. And so then it's like, well, so what if that wasn't? Now, a couple things here. Could still be Jennifer, but not Red Rock and Housen. Or it could have not been Jennifer at all and not been Red Rock and Housen. And in either one of those instances, now we don't have. We don't have the same issue. Still the same issue a little bit if it was Jennifer, because still, why is she knocking on the wrong door? Mm-hmm. But, but if it wasn't Jennifer, it was a different group of people. Well, then we have, I don't know, it, it, it's hard. to it, it, it just opens up a whole new world. Could it have still been the actual killer or could it have been the actual, the, the, you know, the knock on the door and the actual killers coming? Well, if they came from the other way, it definitely could have been. If they came from the area of the patio and went back, the whole knocking on the wrong door thing. That doesn't make sense for Jennifer, who lives upstairs and is supposedly targeting specifically Catalina. But now if you're talking about a, a stranger, so now we're not talking about Eva, we're not talking about Jennifer, we're talking about some stranger, another third party, them knocking on the wrong door. Maybe it was they were trying to see, could they get into this one or could they get into this one? Uh, maybe they didn't, you know. They came with some other accomplices and they said, go knock on the door. And she didn't know which door. There's a whole there's a lot more scenarios that could be opened up. I don't know that she heard or that what she saw was the actual killer. But I definitely don't think that we can say that what she saw was Red Rock and House and and Jennifer. And And I really after really thinking a lot and breaking that down during the creation and writing of that episode, I really doubt that who she saw was Jennifer. I really do. Well, and I think you brought up a good point with Housen and the bike. Yeah. I think that's something, even though you wouldn't be able to describe somebody, if you're looking through people, you could tell that somebody, you know what I mean? If they're holding a bike or straddling a bike, what, they would have right. a bike. Like, that would be something you would add, I believe. Especially if you're going to go to the detail of adding, she had two-tone hair and she had a black shirt. Exactly. I feel like you would add that detail as well, that, the, you know, one of the individuals had a bike. And if not that, the fact they went up the stairs. Mm-hmm. Or the fact that they interacted with the girl that was knocking on the door. None of that's in there. None, none of that happens. It's very curious. Yeah. So where does that leave us then with everything? It, it really puts things up in the air. I think there's a possibility June Sage maybe did see the actual killers and it had nothing to do with 
Jennifer or Red Rock or Housen, maybe not even Eva. And we don't, I don't know. I don't know. It, it just, again, so I had said months ago or a month ago that I found it suspicious that all the eyewitnesses described Jennifer in the exact same way. Just that, just that fact alone is a red flag for me. Like, like I've said many times, eyewitness identification is the actual absolute worst form of evidence. Eyewitnesses don't get things right. They don't get details right. And you can see it in just about every case where you, you know, 10 people will witness the same thing happen and describe things happening differently, especially when they're uninvolved parties, right? So that was already a problem. But then I started looking, thinking about the specifics, like we just talked about, the peephole. How did she get in a look so much to know how tall she was and that her hair was two-toned through a peephole? That seems unlikely. And then Housen is even worse. Now, now Red Rock knows Jennifer. He didn't have to even describe that. He describes the shirt, though. Make sure to say she's wearing a black shirt, which that hadn't occurred to me. I just assumed that must be what she's wearing. Everybody says she's wearing a black shirt. She's wearing a black shirt. But she says, I think she says, I have to go back and look, but I think she says she's wearing a white shirt that morning. And also I was like, what the fuck? What if she, ne- what if she never was wearing a black shirt? What if all of that was manipulated? You know, we're all wondering what happened to the black shirt. And if she was wearing a black shirt, where is it? Why didn't police look for it? Why didn't they get a warrant for her apartment or for Eva's apartment? And the police were in both of those places. Where's this black shirt that supposedly everybody said they saw her wearing when she says she wasn't wearing a black shirt? But then Housen, right? So she, he's describing her. So it's a, it's a north-facing apartment, which means with her under the step, she is absolutely in the shadow. The, the, there's a shadow of the apartment over her. Housen is, says he's looking at her. Through the steps. He also says that her back's to the door. And again, her hair, the two-tone part of her hair is her ponytail. So how does he look at through the steps in the shadows of somebody who's facing him and note, note, not only notice, remember, and know to point out to police that she had two-tone highlighted hair? I, I don't believe it. I absolutely don't believe it. I said the only one. You know, we don't get that description from other than the black shirt is Red Rock, but Red Rock didn't have to describe her because he said it was Jen. I know Jen, and that was Jen. But yeah, so I guess I guess to your question, could she have seen have witnessed the actual murderers? I think there's a possibility of that. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys, let's jump into these questions. This one comes from Lauren. What happens to Jennifer's case if we find evidence points to a suspect who is already dead? What is the legal standard in Texas to overturn a conviction? It just depends. I mean, there, there's several ways to overturn a conviction. I mean, you have constitutional overthrowing of a conviction or vacating of a conviction. Basically, say she didn't get a fair trial. So, like, if you discover there was a Brady violation or there was ineffective assistance of counsel, I mean, none of that matters who did it. They, it doesn't even matter if they're innocent or guilty. It's only based on whether or not they received a fair trial. And then if we're talking about actual innocence exoneration, it you just have to, I mean, you have to prove they're innocent. Which, you know, as I've said from the beginning, will be, will be tough in this case because so no, we, we know we've got these two. The tricky part is what was used at trial has to be considered. So at trial, it was presented to the jury that there was two unknown DNA profiles on one of the murder weapons that did not belong to Jennifer or Catalina. So if we test that and it comes up to be two random people that we don't know. That will not be enough to exonerate her, I don't think, because her confession, which also was already in evidence, so has to be considered, says there was two other people that did this. And she said that she didn't commit the murder, that these other two people did. Right. 
And the, the, the CCA would, would consider the fact that the jury already knew that there was these two unknown profiles and they convicted anyway. So finding out who those belong to doesn't matter. Now, if you run those two profiles and you find out that, that one of them is Eva or one of them is KD or one of them is Youngster, or one of them is Red Rock or one of them is Housen, right? So, so you have somebody that's, that's already a part of the narrative that is now inside touching the murder weapon. That now opens up doors because now so you, you can't say, well, Jennifer's confession stands. And since we have this DNA that shows Eva's DNA on the murder scene on the murder weapon, that everything's still copacetic because it's not because both of those things can't exist. Her, her confession can't be true and Eva's DNA on the murder weapon. Those two things cannot exist in the same space. So now you've opened things up. Now we've got a whole different series of questions. The confession can't really be considered because now it's provably false. And then we would work from there. And there's a lot of legal maneuvering that would go from there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So if you if you thought it was like, let's say that either the DNA evidence comes back to like Red Rock or Housen, do you think they could still make an argument that that is who she said it was, even though she gave other names. I think that could be tricky. Because in my head, I feel like they could still work an argument to say, well, that's, that's yeah, the two guys she was with. Right. So that would depend on how hard the DA, the DA would want to fight. Keep in mind, I'm not a lawyer. This isn't legal advice. So this is just my opinion based on what I've seen over the years in these types of cases. Depends on how hard they want to fight because uh, it's, it's kind of the same problem, right? So Red Rock and Housen are already part of the confession. Mm-hmm. And they came from the other way and left from the other way and weren't involved in the murder. So now if their DNA is inside, now again, we've got to take another look back at the confession. Can that still be kept in evidence now that we know it's a false statement? And, and so, and again, from there, it could go any number of different directions. And then you, so, you know, the question was if they're dead. So, so Red Rock is dead. So if the DNA came back to him. It would be tricky because you can't then question him as opposed to, let's say it does come back to rent. Let's say we get a DNA test and, it, and there's a CODIS hit and it, we find some person we've never thought of and they bring them in and question them. And they, you know, obviously their DNA is on the scene and they give a confession to as to what actually happened. And it didn't involve Jennifer. Then that would that should be enough to exonerate her. You know, say say it comes back to what was the name of the guy? Jennifer said that she was was it Frank, you know, the, in one of her versions, she said that even Frank did it right. So if it comes back to and we find out, oh, we this is Frank, Frank's DNA, mm-hmm. and they question Frank, and Frank is like, "All right, you got me. It was me and Eva," and they say, "Was Jennifer involved?" And it's like, "No, this is what happened. It was me and Eva. We did it." Then yeah, that would be enough to exonerate her. But so the, you know, there's a lot of moving parts uh, to go on there. Now, if you find 
there's other places. So let's say you find the DNA of, you know, if we, one thing that I really think we need to do is that wallet, right? So you, you test the wallet and find Eva's DNA on the wallet. Now, if you find Jennifer's DNA on the wallet, it, it doesn't it doesn't help her at all and could hurt her really. I mean, you just like anything else, right? You could make the argument she picked it up after the fact, blah, blah, blah. She was in the apartment. You know, maybe she touched it later. But it's definitely it's probably going to be lights out for her if that's the case. Not necessarily, but probably. But now, if you find Eva's DNA on the wallet, Eva, who says she's completely uninvolved, was never in the apartment, never never did any of this, has no connection to the crime or the wallet whatsoever. And you find Eva's skin cells on that wallet, then now again, it's going to open things up again. Is that enough to fully? Or it's definitely going to be enough to bring Eva in to to question her, possibly arrest her and try her. And then it's going to, you know, all of that will be considered. But this isn't one of those cases where, you know, like, uh, you know, say a rape and murder case and you have DNA on the scene that's not tested. And one person, you know, Zach, you've been arrested and spent 20 years in prison for this. And we run the DNA test and find out that it was Mike's DNA. Then that's pretty simple. You're out. This mm-hmm. is much more complicated than that. Danny says, is there any chance that Red Rock was not Broderick, but his twin brother, Roderick? That would explain a bit more about why he seemed interested in young Jen, given Roderick's criminal history. Okay, just to clarify that, as I mentioned, Red Rock has a twin brother named Roderick. And as I said, when I started looking at his criminal history, I was like, oh, shit, look at this big laundry list of charges. But as it turned out, those were not Broderick, who is Red Rock. Those were Roderick, his brother that has the big criminal history. And I think that, you know, that. First of all, no is the answer to the question. I think that it, that causes a lot. You try to take a lot of leaps like, well, but what if he gave him, the, you know, that, that what that would mean is, and I thought about it because it's like, well, he's a twin. Maybe he gave him the, gave him his brother's ID and said, you know, I'm Broderick. But those, there's no reason for him to do that at that time, right? Because a lot of these charges aren't present yet. They're not, they're not an issue yet. And I'd have to look. There's a chance Broderick might have even been in jail at the time. I don't know. The weird thing is, though, that I think Danny's hitting on and I can kind of relate to this sort of being a twin myself, is that the name Red Rock seems to coexist better with Roderick. Roderick. And and I can't really get over that because especially with them being twins, it's almost like he's using his brother's nickname. I don't know if I can explain it that well. No, I'm tracking with what you're saying. Yeah. So so that is kind of hard to get over, that idea. And And it would open the door to mistaken identities. It, it definitely can. And actually, Danny sent me a message mentioning that, like, doesn't Red Rock seem more like Roderick? I don't know where that nickname came from, but I guess I guess to put a button on this would be, for me anyway, is, is as I said, um, Red Rock's dead. And I think if I'm some listeners on our fan page track down his obituary, and in the obituary, it says that Broderick, our guy that we're dealing with, that Broderick's nickname was Red Rock, so I, th- I think that kind of puts any any. Uh, I, I think confusion. in Hausen's statement, when he first describes him, he he calls him Broderick and then says it's Red Rock. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of layers, and that's what I meant by like you got to take a, you got to you got to make a lot of leaps. I do see where Danny and, and Mike are both coming from because sure, it sure, does 100%. seem like it ties in better. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely you wonder, especially when there's a one letter difference because they have the same middle name. Like, could it be mistaken identity? Could it have actually been Roderick? But there's too much. I mean, the fact that, you know, the, the obituary says that Broderick's nickname was Red Rock. They all called him Red Rock. Hausen says it's my friend Broderick who goes by Red Rock. Everybody's calling, you know, uh, uh, Jen only knew him as Red Rock, but, but Hausen knew him 
by Broderick also. So yeah, I, I don't think so. It's it's not it's it's not a bad thought. I just think that knowing what we know, we got to take too many leaps to get there. Colleen says it's super weird to me that Red Rock knows Jennifer's name, but refers to Eva as quote the Mexican girl. Why does he know Jennifer's name? I mean, I don't know. Think about your neighborhood. Are there people in your neighborhood who you know by name and people in your neighborhood who you don't know by name? That's true. Yeah. It's I mean, very, very true. Actually, I live in a small neighborhood mm-hmm. and I probably, it's probably 50, 50 other people I know and don't know. Right. And you wave to all of them. Yeah. You, yeah. Can, you can identify them. You know, they're the people that live over there mm-hmm. and don't live. It depends on their relationship. You know, obviously Red Rock and Jennifer uh, have had some enough interaction to where he's learned her name before. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about before, you know, why Red Rock was going to see Eva. It doesn't seem like he was going to visit a friend because he doesn't even know her name. Carrie says Jen was seen under the staircase with her back to the door telling people to go away. Doesn't this seem like pretty guilty behavior if the statement is true? It, what, is, what does back to the door mean, right? So, th- so this, this comes up in Red Rock's written statement a week after Jennifer is arrested. And in this one, in that same statement, now he says, I was going to visit my friend Eva, which is not what he said the first time. And now she's, unlike his first statement, now she's got her back to the door. Didn't say that the first time. So there's, a, and, and what does that mean? She's knocking on the door and she heard them approach and just turned around to talk to them. You know, technically that's her back to the door, you know, so it's not like you kind of read it and imagine her like, you know, pinning her back against the door, like, go away. Don't look at what's going on here. But all it means is that she was turned. All it means is that she was facing them and talking to them. So I don't think it means anything at all. Ashley says, will we be hearing anything from friends of Catalina's, other relatives, etc.? Did she have life insurance or a healthy savings account that someone would be the beneficiary of? I'm hoping so. As I said before, from what Juan told me, all of her old church friends are gone and passed on. She, he's literally my only contact. I mean, I went to her only relative. I've had people say, you need to do a better job on victimology. I'm like, I, the hell do you want me to do? She, she's got one living relative who did talk to me. Well, and I think you have to put together, too, she was in her 70s when she was murdered 20 right. years ago. Right, 25 20, 20, years 20, ago. Yeah, so there's probably not a whole lot of friends still around. Right, and that's what he said because I asked him, you know, is there, are any of them still around? You know, and he said they're all gone. Uh, so I, I have no one else to talk to except Juan, uh, and I don't have a phone number for Juan. So I'm, and I don't know if I already mentioned this episode or if that was in the Patreon pre-roll, but uh, I am going back to Houston, and uh, it'd be about a week and a half from when you guys hear this. I have a trip planned. One of the things on that trip is to try to go talk to Juan again, ask some of those questions. He did tell me, as he put it, she didn't have any money, so I don't think there was any kind of big savings account. Maybe there was life insurance. I kind of doubt that too. You know, people don't typically have life insurance on themselves unless they have someone who depends on them. She didn't work. She didn't have a, you know, she didn't have a job. So she was, it wasn't like she had something provided by her employer. So I, I don't know. It's possible. I'll ask about that. But even keep in mind, even when she was killed, Juan was her only living relative. Remember, she never married or I think, I think he said that she did for a minute way back when, but never had any kids. So she, you know, she doesn't have any, any, any children to be dependents or beneficiaries. You know, she just lived with her nephew, the whole thing. Her parents were gone. She had her sister who died the year before. And she had her sister's son, one son, Juan, who she lived with for most of her adult life. And that's, that's, that was her entire circle right there. Juan always kind of just took care of her. Lynn says, have you contacted any of the local news channels to see if they have any archived footage with interviews at the scene? 
I can see at least three or four stations ready with cameras and microphones in the crime scene video. Possibly even a news person still is working today that was at the scene interviewing neighbors. I also don't see anyone in a white muscle shirt as Peekert reported Housen was wearing, especially near his bike or near Red Rock in the crime scene video. As far as the news stations, I haven't, I, I thought about giving it a try. I've never, ever had any luck with that in the past. No one, no one has been interested or open to giving up that archival footage or they don't have it. Um, usually anytime I've had any luck is if someone, is one of you listeners actually has some connections within one of those news stations. So if that's the case and you're listening, please reach out uh, and we can try it. As far as housing goes, I think, I think I was in this episode where I said what my theory about the whole, where the whole mic thing came from. And that's what I think happened. So I, so if memory serves, you can see Housen's bike in the crime scene video, but you don't see Housen in the video. You see Red Rock standing there very clearly describing, you know, wearing what he's supposedly wearing, uh, but no Housen. So my thought was that when Red Rock gives his oral interview and he says, I was here with my buddy Mike, I don't know where he's at, that then that officer goes asking around about Mike, comes across youngster. And asks if he knows where Mike is. KD hears that. And again, this is just a theory. So don't, this is not fact, but this is what I think probably happened that KD hears that. And then when KD's trying to create this false narrative, when he gives his statement, he adds in, kind of throws in as almost an afterthought that, oh, and I heard her say, let go of me, Mike, because all KD knows is the police are looking for a guy named Mike. So maybe, you know, he should, he should point them in the direction of a Mike. Because he did hear someone say Mike. But I think that's where that came from was the fact that, like you said, Housen wasn't on the scene right then when all the officers were there. But his bike was, so he was around the area somewhere. And uh, I think they were just looking for Mike to get a statement from him. Lynn's next question, have you made an attempt to contact the responding EMS personnel? Uh, working on it. Yeah, I have, I have their names. I've been working on tracking them down. Sarah says, is it possible to find out if Housen had a juvenile record or what kind of reputation he had in the community when Catalina was murdered? Uh, That's also another reason for my trip to Houston. I've got some people I'm trying to contact. Uh, A major reason for this trip, other than talking to Juan for me, is I think I've got a good handle on things now and, and kind of a list of who... I think would be might have some information to talk to about some of that background stuff. Phone numbers and, and, and my sources are typically not right, and people generally are much more open to speaking when you knock on their door as opposed to when you call them and they can easily just hit a button and hang up on you. So one thing I, I just thought about as you're talking about this, and you talk about possibly trying to reach out to the EMS, the first responders. Uh-huh. What would you go in asking? Because I feel like that's such a generic person to ask because as you were a first responder, You've seen a lot. So I feel like it'd be hard to recall anything from a particular event 25 years ago. So what I would ask them is, because I've thought a lot about this, is you know what would trigger a memory in me out of the thousands of EMS calls I've been on in my life is, is I, would, I would first ask, do you guys ever remember going to the Green Arbor Apartments to a murder? Because so that's so you run a lot of calls, but not, I mean, not a lot of murders. OK. And so I'd be like, you know, it was, it was a came in as an EMS call, was an elderly lady. Ended up being stabbed, stabbed to death. It was a murder. Does that ring a bell? I've had luck with some of that before. Um, uh, season two, Elnora Griffin. I talked to, I tracked down the first responder, firefighter first responder that went. And, uh, you know, when I kind of br- just gave him a little bit of the, and he's like, oh, oh the, yeah, the place had the pond back there. I remember going back and yeah, yeah. Okay. And he remembered it. 
good chance, you know, city of Houston's very busy. Mm-hmm. You know, good chance the answer to that question is, dude, I've run a hundred murders in my life. I don't remember. And that's just what I was wondering because I just feel like, you know, I, I've heard you talk to me off record about cases, right. not, not about them, but talking about how many cases you've been to. And I just feel like it would be really hard to, to narrow it down to a certain case that you worked on 25 years ago. Right. With any reliability. Yeah. And, and that was, yeah. And it, it certainly they're not going to be like, oh yeah, I remember we got dispatched at nine twelve, And I remember, but you know, maybe to just get a feel of the scene or, or, you know, the procedures back then or why would there have been again we're still i'm still wrestling with this 27 minute time i think i think we're missing something if i had a guess i think of all the different information we have that's given us the timeline that we're working with the most solid time i think is when the police were dispatched we have a very clear in the report that officer peekert first on scene working off the top of my head but someone called 911 and reported a doa at 942 dispatched at 944, arrived on scene at 948 or whatever. That's the most solid time that I think that we have. That's when police were dispatched and they already knew they were going to a dead body. The other time we have on the front end of that is time of death was pronounced by EMS personnel on scene at 915. That's in the ME's report. That I think is, I feel like if there's a mistake, that's where it is. Because as I said before, it's, it's, it's hearsay. Right. It's mm-hmm. on a report, but it's hearsay. So you got one report saying what another report that we don't have says. Well, I think we came to that conclusion last season with the Courtney's case where we talked about the lividity. Right. And it, it said one thing, but I think we came to the conclusion that that was just a typo. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the details, but yeah. Uh, it, the, they said lividity was one way, and but she was laying the other way, and we believed that, oh, it was that just, she had been moved. Yeah. That's when we had Dr. Wecht mm-hmm. um, come on. Who scared the hell out of me? Um, <laughs> scary guy. Yeah. So I, I don't even remember what this question was, but uh, but going on to my thought there. Yeah, I I really feel like oh, it was about uh, contacting EMS person. Yeah, so they're not going to give us times, but they may be able to say like like oh yeah, I remember, you know maybe it rings a bell. But there, I have I have cases that stick out in my head that I can tell you every detail about. Not times, but you know if I was like, well, why? You know, it seems like there was like a half hour after you pronounced her dead, you guys called the police and we're like, oh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were packing up. And then, you know, somebody was like, is that a stab wound? And we went back, you know, something like that. But I, I, I'm not super confident we'll get anything out of that, but it, it sure would be nice because, again, I just don't. The tw- a lot of people on the fan page after the last week have come up with different thoughts and theories on, on why, why or how. They might have went back because, again, my issue is I don't see a reason for them to go back to the body to make that determination after they've called it called it dead. But I just don't see it. If I had to guess and it's just a guess, my guess is that that 915 time of death is not accurate. That is probably closer to 930 or after that is, is, is my guess. And that's strictly based on a hunch and the fact that I can't make sense. I can't make sense of the EMS movements. With a 9:15 time of death and a and a 9:42 call to uh, call to the police. Pike says, "Do we know if the detectives asked Jen during all of her statements what Eva told her to lie about?" This goes back to the beginning and is pretty basic, but I don't remember hearing it anywhere. It's just a basic question that might be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, we've seen which is not a not a reliable source at all. But in Crime Watch Daily, we hear her say that Eva told her to say, I think we hear her say that Eva told her to say that she was outside when the screaming happened. Uh, and she says she wasn't out there when that happened. I believe I should have looked at that question before we started because I'd have to go back to her state. But, but I mean, for your own research, go back and look at 
not Jennifer's first police statement on her website, not her first written statement, not her not her confession or her second written statement, but look at there's a file in the case documents that is Allen's reports on Jennifer's interview where he talks about the different versions of events she gave, and that's where she says, well, she only said that because Eva Eva told her to. And I know I in my mind she was talking about the fact that she was there when all of the screaming happened. And that she really wasn't, but I'd have to go back and review that to be sure. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lindsay says, Bob, can you clarify further what you were saying about how everyone had the same description of Jen, but maybe it was actually a different description? I think you were implying that maybe Eva was the one the neighbor saw knocking on the door. No, I'm not implying at all that, that it was Eva. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of implied, I, I, I just, I posed what if, what June had said was that it was a black female in her 20s wearing a collared shirt. I posed that because that's what Zaragoza Garza actually saw. That's what he testified to, even though Swainson wrote in his report that he said he saw the girl with the black shirt and the two-toned hair, like everyone else. I just, I was just saying, if, you know, as we're paralleling those two, what if that's what she actually said, then what would we think? And, and because we see Eva sitting at the top of the stairs in the crime scene video wearing a collared shirt uh, is the only reason I mentioned that. But no, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that it was Eva she saw. All I'm saying is that we've been banking on the fact that June Sage has a, is, is a reliable witness here and witnessed something that was either connected to the crime or occurred right after. And the, the whole time we're thinking that who she saw was Jennifer. But I think it's very, very unlikely that she described who she saw in the way that she saw it. And I think it's even more unlikely that she described the interaction with Red Rock and Housen when there were two guys rolled up, one on foot, one on a bike. One of them walks halfway up the stairs. They're standing there talking to Jennifer and then goes back down the stairs and they ride away on foot and bike. And that she just describes two or three black men that just come into the area and then leave the area. So I just think I think what it does is it opens up a lot more questions. You know, not necessarily did she see Jennifer interacting with Red Rock. I think she could have seen some other person, some probably female, maybe even not female, knocking on her door and and some black men that could have been or maybe could not have been Jennifer and Red Rock and Housen. So it's just it's just opening up. I'm just blabbering now, but it's just opening up a whole new a world of possibilities as to what she actually witnessed. And what and I'm not saying, and what I'm, what I'm definitely not saying is that I think she saw Eva. I'm not saying there's no evidence to support that whatsoever. I was just giving a hypothetical based on what uh, Zaragoza said he saw. So I'm, I'm not saying that I think she saw Eva. I'm saying that I don't think she saw Jennifer. 
or at least that I don't think she described Jennifer in the way that is documented in the report. Our last question comes from Angela. Do you have a picture of the view from June's apartment? Could she even see the stairs or the sidewalk where the bike was from her door? I don't have a picture of the view, um, but you can see by looking at photos in the video, like the angles she would have. I don't think she could see through the peephole. Now, again, it is that fisheye, fishbowl type lens. So maybe she could have seen somebody over at Catalina's door. I think if you could, you couldn't really see much. But she did have a straight angle out to from her door. You know, the, the again, the peephole will distort it. But from her door, she could see right there at a straight line right to the foot of the steps that go up to Eva's apartment right there. She had a clear view of that and everything happening out in front of there. Um, so, she, yeah, she, she would have been able to see everything that happened in that, in that general area. Okay, that's it for questions. Thanks, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. All right. Yep. Thank you, everybody. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you're around the Kansas City area and are interested in attending the True Crime Podcast Festival, uh, that website is truecrimepodcastfestival.com. Use our code ROUGH and you'll get 10% off of that. And I hope to see a bunch of you guys there. Um, any other announcements? Uh, True Crime Binge this week. I had uh, all three of the hosts from the Piketon Massacre. Season two of that podcast just went live. Fascinating story. Fascinating and well-produced podcast. I uh, had all three of the hosts on there. Um, and other than that, wish my daughter luck, who, as you're listening to this, will be playing in her state semifinal softball tournament and with that being said if sunday's episode's a little shorter than normal that's because they keep winning and i keep having to drive to the middle of the state to go watch and cheer my daughter on and make sure you tune in on sunday uh where i will be i can't believe nobody complained about this the the big cliffhanger at the end of this episode we're gonna be breaking all that down and more on sunday have a great week guys Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. 
You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.